Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Here is your host, Michael Stover. Okay, well, welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. Although today, I'm bringing this episode to you from our uh, office in Richmond, Virginia. So uh, I want to open up this episode by saying a happy early Valentine's Day to everyone, and thank you for your continued support of Surety Today. Remember, you can um, listen to anyone uh, or all of our 79 uh, prior episodes uh, anytime, anywhere from one of our multiple platforms, um, our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com, as a podcast at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean. Just search for uh, Surety Today and we'll pop up. Uh, and on our micro site at suretytoday.net. Um, you can also catch the uh, podcast there. As of today, we had just over 8,800 downloads of our podcast, so um, some some good uh, some good success with that. Uh, as always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid any background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. Today, uh, I'm going to talk about some recent case law in the surety world, which Uh, we call our surety case law update. The cases will address uh, lack of uh, incorporation by reference, uh, the surety and arbitration, applicability of Pennsylvania's bad faith statute to sureties, failure to comply with the A312 notice requirements, obligees claims against a payment bond, uh, what is required to declare a default, and uh, if there's time, uh, notice to the government to trigger its duty to protect the contract funds. So we have a lot to cover. So let's get started. Pull up the right document. So the first case that I will discuss is the case of U.S. Specialty Insurance Company versus Traywick Contractors. And that's out of the Northern District of Alabama. It's a decision that just came out about what... Uh, 10 days ago, 11 days ago. Uh, in this case, the, the question of whether a surety can be held liable for attorney's fees when the bond does not provide coverage for such fees and the underlying contract was not incorporated into the bond by reference is addressed. So many jurisdictions adhere to the view that if the underlying contract is incorporated into the bond by reference, then the surety can be held responsible for the principal's obligations in the underlying contract, including uh, the payment of attorney's fees. But what about when there's no incorporation by reference of the underlying contract in the bond? In this case, the court still found liability under Alabama law. Surety bonded an electrical subcontractor on a school construction project. The bonds referenced the subcontract, but did not expressly incorporate the subcontract by reference. The general contractor, who was the obligee, 
declared the principal in default, terminated its subcontract, and retained another electrical uh, contractor to complete the work. Hold on here, we're having technical difficulties. Okay. So um, the surety filed a deck action uh, and the obligee counterclaimed for the completion costs and the attorney's fees and consulting fees. Eventually, the surety paid the completion costs but refused to pay the attorney and consulting fees. The obligee argued that the surety and the principal were jointly and severally liable, that the subcontract had numerous provisions obligating the principal to pay legal fees for various breaches and or defaults. So under Alabama law, a surety is not liable for attorney's fees incurred by an obligee in the absence of a statute unless there is an express provision in the contract or the bond binding the principal to that effect. Here the bond, um, the bond did not obligate the surety to pay attorney's fees, but the underlying contract did uh, have the attorney's fees provisions. In the opinion, the court noted that performance bonds are contracts and that the general rules of contract interpretation apply. In surveying uh, applicable contract law, the court observed that under contract law, a court should read together two or more instruments signed by the same parties in reference to the same subject matter and such instruments should be construed as one. Further, different writings executed at the same time and relating to the same subject matter will be construed as one instrument. Finally, under contract law, where a writing expressly refers to and sufficiently describes another document, that other document should be interpreted as part of the writing. The Alabama Supreme Court in construing a bond had previously held that it, it must look to the construction contract to which the bond refers and the two writings are parts of the entire transaction and constitute but a single contract as if embodied in one instrument. In this case, the performance bond referred to the subcontract and the work that was to be performed under that subcontract. Subcontract also required the principal to furnish a performance bond and a payment bond. Reading the subcontract and bond together, the court held that the surety must cover the reasonable attorney fees. Many jurisdictions follow the general rule uh, of construing related contracts together as one. So even uh, where the underlying contract uh, is not expressly incorporated by reference, a court may still find a way to bind the surety to the terms of the underlying contract under general contract law given the related nature of the bonds and the underlying contracts. So in this next case, uh, we find uh, yet another example of an obligee failing to comply with the requirements of the A312 performance bond. And as a bonus in this case, we have another example of an obligee trying to recover uh, under a payment bond. Uh, the case is MCM Management Corp versus Hudson Insurance Company it's out of the Northern District of Illinois, and it came down December 12th of 2022. Plaintiff uh, MCM entered into a subcontract with Jenkins Environmental Inc., JEI, we'll call them, in connection with a demolition project on the south side of Chicago. JEI, in turn, entered into a sub-subcontract with Marine Technology Solutions, LLC, Marine Tech, we'll call them, Hudson issued the A312 performance and payment bonds on the sub-subcontract with Marine Tech as its principal and JEI as the obligee. 
MCM was included in the bonds as an additional obligee on a rider. The A312 performance bond contained the usual, you know, paragraph three notice and meeting requirements, declaration of default, termination requirement, and uh, agreement to pay the balance of the contract uh, sum. In, if the obligee complied with the requirements of paragraph three and was not in default, then under paragraph four, the surety had several options to choose uh, from as far as performing. The A312 uh, payment bond provided that a claimant was defined as an individual or entity supplying labor, materials, or equipment in the prosecution of the work provided for in the subcontract. It was undisputed in the case that both JEI and Marine Tech had defaulted. It was also undisputed that the first notice that Hudson received from anyone about problems at the project was on July 31st, 2020, well after the default, when MCM sent a letter demanding payment. The letter from MCM stated that JEI and Marine Tech had defaulted, that Marine Tech had been removed from the project prior to the completion of its scope of work. The letter continued by noting that after the removal of Marine Tech from the project, MCM was forced to perform the remaining scope of work at an additional cost of over $4.6 million. These costs exceeded the penal sum of the performance bond, which was only $299,000. So right off the bat, we, we see a very flawed picture here. Before any notice of the surety was given, the principal was removed from the project and the remaining scope of work was completed and the costs were incurred by the obligee. So Hudson properly denied the plaintiff's bond claim and uh, the plaintiff filed suit. Uh, Hudson moved for summary judgment. The court began its analysis by reviewing basic surety law in Illinois and noting that a surety bond is a contract and must be interpreted as a contract and that a surety is not bound uh, beyond the expressed terms of the bond. Further, when interpreting a performance bond, the court must look solely to the unambiguous language of the bond as evidence of the intentions of the parties. The court also noted that the legal duties of a surety on its bond should not be expanded beyond the terms of the surety's promise. So Hudson argued that, uh, of course, that MCM failed to comply with the notice requirements under the performance bond, thereby robbing the surety of its contractual options for performance. The court noted the importance of compliance with the notice requirements under the performance bond and quoted from LNA Contracting and from Dragon Construction to well-known uh, surety cases. The court, relying on several authorities from around the country, stated that the plain language of the performance bond convinces the court that, as defendants argue, plaintiff was required to comply with the conditions of paragraph three before defendant's duties under paragraph four were triggered. MCM argued that its situation was different because it was an additional obligee as opposed to the original obligee. It believed that its status as additional obligee exempted it from complying with the conditions precedent. The court disagreed and stated that as an additional obligee, MCM was in effect a third party beneficiary. A third party beneficiary is not entitled to expand or enlarge a promisor's obligation under a contract. Rather, the terms of the contract are controlling with respect to the rights of the third party beneficiary. The court observed plaintiff as additional obligee cannot have it two ways. It cannot expect to take the benefits of the agreement without taking the obligation. Accordingly, the court agreed uh, with courts from around the country that concluded 
that additional obligees are subject to the terms, including the conditions precedent of performance bonds. In addition, Hudson also argued that it was entitled to summary judgment because its obligation under the performance bond was never triggered in light of the fact that it was admitted and undisputed that the co-obligee, JEI, had also defaulted. Paragraph three of the performance bond uh, opens with the wording, quote, if there is no obligee default, the surety's obligation under this bond shall arise after, unquote. So under this plain language, Hudson's obligations did not arise if the obligee defaulted. So as a matter of law, Hudson's obligation under the performance bond did not arise. Accordingly, the court held that even uh, had plaintiff complied with the conditions precedent regarding notice, the default of JEI as co-obligee pre prevented Hudson's obligations under the performance bond from ever being triggered. Finally, the court made a quick work of MCM's uh, claim under the payment bond. It began by noting that a payment bond guarantees the obligor's obligation to pay for labor materials so laborers and suppliers have a right to enforce such a bond as third-party beneficiaries. The payment bond defined a claimant as an individual or entity supplying labor materials or equipment in the prosecution of the work provided for in the subcontract. MCM put forth no evidence that it supplied labor or materials uh, to Marine Tech. The court stated the payment bond is not a performance bond. Payment bonds benefit laborers and suppliers, not obligees. Accordingly, the court entered summary judgment in favor of Hudson on all claims. And I think um, counsel for the surety in that case was Grace Cranley uh, out in Chicago, and uh, sounds like she did a great job there. And the surety uh, was uh, granted summary judgment. So the next case, uh, we see a holding from the Pennsylvania State Appellate Court that a surety was aware, who was aware of an arbitration proceeding and who had a chance to participate in the arbitration is bound by the ruling in the arbitration. But to me, the, the best part of this case is the holding that, uh, that the surety was not subject to Pennsylvania's insurer bad faith statute. The court uh, does a great job in, in the opinion of discussing the distinction between suretyship and insurance. So the case is um, Eastern Steel Constructors, Inc. versus International Fidelity Assurance Company. And that's a case where re-argument was denied November 2022. The case arose uh, from a project for the construction of a science center on a, on a, on a public university. The university um, entered into um, multiple um, multiple uh, prime contractors, including one with uh, Ionadai Corporation uh, as the general there to supply and erect the structural steel. The general obtained uh, surety bonds from IFIC on the A312 form. The general subcontracted part of the work to Eastern Steel Constructors. Uh, Eastern, the Eastern subcontract provided that, uh, quote, any costs incurred direct and indirect for which Eastern is subjected in pursuing um, any money or consequential damages, legal fees, and costs of any kind uh, to Eastern for non-performance will be the general's and IFIC's responsibility. I always hate it when the underlying contract refers to the surety as being responsible as well, uh, because you know when when that's treated as being incorporated, it's it's you know it's, it's 
spilled over. Finally, uh, the subcontract required disputes to be resolved through arbitration. So Eastern began the work, and although General kindly paid the first five payments, it subsequently either did not pay, partially paid, or paid late, uh, causing uh, cash flow problems. So while work was ongoing, uh, Eastern notified IFIC that uh, the general was in default and requested uh, from the surety prompt payment plus legal and statutory interest. Although the surety made some payments to Eastern, the, the subcontractor contended by the end of the project that it was still owed about $250,000 exclusive of interest and attorney's fees. After completion of the work, Eastern uh, filed uh, um, an arbitration. Uh, the surety declined to participate. Uh, on the day that the arbitration hearing began, uh, the general uh, contractor filed a Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Eastern, after notifying uh, IFIC, uh, requested the bankruptcy court to lift the automatic stay. However, IFIC did not appear at the hearing. When the bankruptcy court lifted the automatic stay, Eastern uh, restarted the arbitration. Again, IFIC, although notified, did not show up. The arbitrator issued an award in favor of Eastern for both unpaid materials and labor and arbitration fees expenses, including attorney's fees. Eastern then petitioned the court to confirm the award and entered as a judgment. If it was present at that proceeding, but did not object to the entry of the judgment, which the trial court granted, uh, nor, nor did the surety appeal the judgment. Unable to uh, enforce the judgment against the general because of the bankruptcy, Eastern sued IFIC, uh, asserting multiple counts, including breach of contract, enforcement of the arbitration, uh, bad faith under the Pennsylvania insurer bad faith statute. The Pennsylvania Appellate Court ruled that the judgment in favor of Eastern was binding on IFIC because the surety had notice of the arbitration proceeding and the opportunity um, to participate uh, but chose not to. The payment bond provided that the general and, and IFIC were jointly and severally liable for the entire payment obligation. With respect to the claimants, the bond provided that it will be deemed null and void if the general promptly made payments for all sums due. Because the bond did not define sums due, the court stated that the meaning of that term must be determined by reference to the subcontract. Subcontract, in turn, required resolution of payment disputes by arbitration. The court reiterated that Eastern uh, pursued contractual arbitration is mandated to recover not only contract damages, but also the attorney's fees court continued that if it was aware of the proceeding and refused to participate despite being invited to, so neither neither the general contractor nor IFIC sought to vacate the arbitration award, neither objected to Eastern's request to lift the automatic stay. So finally, the court noted that after the award was reduced to judgment, neither appealed the judgment. So the court observed that prior Pennsylvania Supreme Court authority on the issue and the quote unquote clear majority rule is that a surety is conclusively bound by an arbitration award against the principal if the surety had notice and a reasonable opportunity to participate in the arbitration. For it continued that while some courts have held that an arbitration award is only prima facie evidence as opposed to conclusive evidence of a surety's liability, this court rejects such a rule as merely providing a surety who stands in the shoes uh, of its principal with a second bite at the proverbial apple to challenge sums due a claimant already determined under binding arbitration. Moreover, viewing such uh, an arbitration award as prima facie evidence, the court stated, violates the principle 
that a surety's contract damages is coextensive with the liability of its principal. If it, in the alternative argued that its coextensive liability shared with the general should be limited to just cost, labor, material, and equipment, as opposed to, uh, which is what the payment bond referred to, as opposed to attorney's fees. The court rejected that argument, pointing out that the bond obligation extended to the payment of, quote unquote, all sums due. Uh, the court again referenced the subcontract to define the term sums due, which included, of course, the provision of the attorney's fees that we talked about at the beginning. So uh, as a result, IFIC was, was bound uh, for the arbitration, including for the attorney's fees. But the, as I said earlier, I think that the, the most important part of that, that arbitration ruling is not that unusual. I think there are a lot, lots of cases and lots of jurisdictions around the country that hold that. Maryland is one that holds that uh, the arbitration award would be prima facie evidence, but it wouldn't be conclusively binding on the surety. But, but uh, Pennsylvania has taken the opposite approach there. But the, the most important thing to me is the, the, uh, the bad faith ruling. So as I say, in addition to the arbitration, the court also addressed the claim for bad faith. Uh, Pennsylvania law 42, Pennsylvania statutes and consolidated statutes annotated section 8371 provides that in an action arising under an insurance policy, if the court finds that the insured has acted in bad faith towards the insured, the court may take all of the following actions. Uh, it can award interest, um, it can award punitive damages, it can assess attorney's fees. So if it contended that the statute did not apply because the terms insurance policy and insured uh, contained in the statute did not apply to sureties or surety bonds. The court noted that the applicability of the bad faith statute to sureties was an issue of first impression for Pennsylvania appellate courts. The court began its analysis by discussing the traditional rules of statutory interpretation, including the rule that the intent of the legislature was to be determined by the plain language of the statute. The court also noted that because the bad faith, bad faith statute was a penal provision, it must be construed strictly. According to the plain language of the statute, it was only intended to apply to an action arising under an insurance policy. The court observed that the legislative history of the statute revealed that the General Assembly did not engage in any discussions on suretyship or whether it intended to include sureties within the meaning of the term insurance policy. Indeed, insurance policy is not defined in that section of the statute at all. So the court uh, consulted Black Law Dictionary to determine the ordinary meaning of the statutory terms insurance policy, insured, insurance, et cetera, uh, none of which, of course, include anything to do with suretyship. Uh, further, the, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in the past had endorsed an understanding expressed by the United States Supreme Court in the well-known case of Perlman versus Reliance Insurance Company, wherein the Supreme Court noted that the usual view grounded in commercial practice is that suretyship is not insurance. The court continued explaining that surety bonds uh, are um, in the nature of commercial guarantee instruments rather than policies of insurance. The court observed that suretyship is not subsumed by the definition of insurance and concluded that fundamental differences naturally exist between, between contracts involving insurance and suretyship and began um, listing some of those differences in the opinion. So first, <coughs> excuse me, the court noted that insurance policies are bilateral contracts 
where an insurer and its insured share a direct contractual relationship. And the understanding of that relationship is that the insurer will compensate the insured for loss or damage upon proper proof of claim and without resort to litigation. Suretyship contracts, on the other hand, are tripartite in nature, where one party, the surety, agrees on behalf of another party, the principal, to make the insurance uh, in the risk of loss remains with the principal of a surety merely lends its credit so as to guarantee payment or performance in the event that the principal defaults. Second, citing to uh, Bruner and O'Connor uh, treatise, the court observed that the role of the surety is different from that uh, of an insurer because, one, the surety bond is a financial credit product, not an insurance indemnity product. Two, the surety has uh, a contractual relationship with two parties that often have conflicting interests, causing the surety to balance these interests when responding to claims. The surety bond form customarily is written or furnished by an obligee rather than, um, rather than the surety. Um, think in terms of uh, you know, the governmental bonds and things like that. The surety customarily is requested to assure performance of construction contracts that are sufficiently large to warrant bonding and typically are entered into by parties with commercial sophistication, relative parity of bargaining power, and access to ample legal and technical advice. Fifth, the bond premium usually is paid by the contractor to the surety out of the contract price rather than directly by the obligee to the surety, although it is not uncommon for obligees to reimburse. Uh, and then sixth, uh, from Bruner and O'Connor, the, the pricing of the premium by the surety is not based upon risk of fortuitous loss, but assumes reimbursement to the surety from the principal and indemnitors for any loss. So third, the court continued that uh, insurers assume the risk uh, on the assumption that insurance premiums paid will exceed any loss sustained, whereas sureties attempt to be reasonably certain that they will not sustain any loss. This is reaffirmed by the fact that a surety generally will not issue a bond to a principal unless the principal executes an indemnity agreement to indemnify the surety against any losses the surety may sustain as a result of a claim on the bond. Fourth, the court observed that special damages for bad faith would be appropriate only in the context of insurance where the parties, the insurer and the insured, share a direct bilateral relationship. However, a surety and a protected party, such as the payment bond claimant, share no such direct contractual relationship by which a surety agreed to pay the claimant. Fifth, the court noted that the bad faith statute is a statutorily created tort action. Uh, it applies only in the context of insurance, excluding claims for breach of any ordinary contract, such as surety bonds. This exclusion is commiserate with uh, Pennsylvania law where putative damages are awarded typically only in tort actions. Thus, it would be illogical, the court explained, to extend a bad faith action to ordinary contracts. But differently, because the surety stands in the shoes of its principal, and an obligee could not have brought a bad faith claim attendant with a right to seek punitive damages <coughs> excuse me, against the principal, it follows that such a cause of action also should be unavailable against the surety. Permitting an obligee to recover punitive damages against a surety would expose the surety to greater liability than its principal. 
This would be incompatible with Pennsylvania law, where it is held that it is axiomatic that the liability of a surety is not greater than that of a principal. Claimant pointed out that under the Pennsylvania Unfair Insurance Practices Act, a separate statute, the term insurance policy includes suretyship. The act um, specifically defines uh, insurance policy to include suretyship. Eastern claimed that the bad faith statute and the Unfair Practices Act uh, are in peri materia. Statutes are considered to be in peri materia uh, when they relate to the same persons or things, and uh, statutes or parts of statutes in peri materia shall be construed together if possible. However, peri materia canon of construction is triggered only if the words of a statute are ambiguous, and here the court did not believe that the bad faith statute was ambiguous. Further, under Pennsylvania law, where a statutory term is specially defined in one statute, but undefined in a later statute, a court must assume that the omission was intended by the legislature and that the special definition applies only to the one statute and not to the latter statute. So here you've got the bad faith statute that doesn't include suretyship in the definition, and then you've got the, the claim statute, which did. So uh, that rule of construction um, applied against construing the bad faith statute to include suretyship. Accordingly, the court held that the Pennsylvania bad faith statute does not apply to suretyship. It is uh, always good, of course, to see a court get the issue uh, of the distinction between suretyship and insurance correct, and to see that the bad faith exposure uh, does not extend to suretyship. And, and I would uh, commend that case to anyone's uh, attention for, you know, the good discussion of this issue. And, and, and you know, when you, if you get into this issue, uh, in, in the future. And apparently, according to this court, it was a case of first impression for Pennsylvania, so it's just recently now been decided. I think there were some, doing the research, there were some federal cases that had uh, come down actually on both sides of the issue. There was one federal case saying that the bad faith statute in Pennsylvania wouldn't apply, and there was, I think there was one earlier decision uh, out of a federal court saying that it would. Uh, so this, this case, uh, I guess, decides that issue. So I see that my time is up. I, I have, I have uh, another case and, and even a second case. So I think what I'll do is uh, I'll, I'll put up some of these case, um, these case law discussions in our blog post uh, coming up in the future so you can see some of these other cases. And we'll get, we'll get some of these cases I talked about today uh, also up on the blog, which by the way, thank you to everybody for um, checking in on, on the blog. That's doing very well. It's getting a lot of um, a lot of attention. A lot of people um, opening up and commenting on on the on the blog post. So appreciate that. Okay, so we're uh, we're at the end here. I'm going to close up. But before I do, I want to um, let everyone know that the next episode of Surety Today will be on Monday, March 13th, uh, at 12:30, of course. Uh, on February 22nd, some upcoming events. The Philadelphia Surety Claims Association will hold its lunch meeting in Philadelphia. Uh, as many of you know, I'm on the board of the PSCA, and we recently ha had a leadership change. Our longtime president, Christine Alexander, with ARCH, stepped down, and uh, Kathleen Maloney, a director of surety claims at Frankenmuth Surety, was installed as our new president. Kathleen made the mistake of not showing up for that meeting and, uh, and consequently was voted in as president. So 
that's what, that's what happens when you don't show up to a meeting, you know. So everyone should should with, wish uh, Kathleen well. I'm sure she would do a great job uh, with the PSCA. So also on March 29th through the 31st, the 34th annual Southern Insurity and Fidelity Claims Conference will be held in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, really looking forward to that conference, and Savannah is, uh, is such a great city. So thank you to everyone for joining me today. Now I will attempt to unmute the line. The conference is now in talk mode. Okay, we're in talk mode. If anybody has any questions, now's the time. The uh, citation for the international fidelity case out of PA. Okay, let me see if I can get that up here. Apparently there's some background music. I don't I don't know if that was playing the whole time. Hope not. No. <laughs> Good. I don't I don't know where that came from. Uh let me see here. Okay, so it was Eastern Steel Constructors versus IFIC, and that is two eighty two Atlantic third. 827 2022 okay any other questions folks all right well again thank you and i look forward to talking to everybody next month take care thank you for listening to this episode of surety today audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.